we've been kind of going through a a contemplative journey here, and I wanted to continue that this morning. And um, I want you to think for a second. What in your life worries you the most? What is the thing that keeps coming back to your brain, you keep obsessing over, keeps you up at night? What is that thing? Maybe it is a worry. Maybe it's something about the future. Maybe it's your finances. Maybe it's your body type. Maybe it's the, I don't know, the way you part your hair. I don't know. It can be really anything. But it's something that is always there. It keeps you from feeling fully confident, perhaps. It keeps you from being able to fully extend into relationships. It keeps you guarded. There is a sense of anxiety attached to it. There's a sense maybe of a depression attached to it. But if you're like most of us, we all have something or some things. Now, if you're thinking about that thing, you're thinking about what it is that keeps you at arm's length from life for the most part. What would it feel like to have that suddenly lifted? What would it feel like to be free of that? To not have to worry about it anymore. To not have to wonder what other people are thinking about you because of that anymore. What would that feel like? Can you even imagine how freeing it would be? What would you do different? How would you live differently? How would you choose differently? You know, Jesus always holds up a child as the emblem of kingdom, because if you think about a child, they are completely free. If they're young enough, they're completely free. They're in the garden. They don't know they're naked. You know, I still remember the day that our son started closing the door when he went to the bathroom. It was kind of a sad day because we realized he passed over a threshold. He was thinking now about how other people perceived him. Now, I don't say that you should all leave the door open when you go to the restroom, but you get my point here. To be that free, to be that open, to just show up, you know? Kids don't know if they're deformed. John's having a good time over there. See, he's exactly what I'm talking about. Kids don't know there's anything wrong with them. If there's anything wrong with them, they just show up and they have the best time. They learn that there's something wrong with them. They learn that there's something about them that is not acceptable to family, to friends, to the general public. And then they learn to put up the shields. They learn to project those things that they feel they need to project in order to get the things that they need, to have the acceptance that they need. Try to imagine if yours were suddenly lifted. What would that feel like? What would that be? See, that's exactly what Jesus' way is all about. Last week we talked about setting a trap for God. If you were here, we were talking about contemplative prayer, The Our Father, which is a contemplative prayer. It's just that we don't get that anymore because all we do is recite it for most of the time. But if we really break it down, we break it down into the five steps. Jesus is talking about clearing a space. And slotha, the word for prayer, means to lay a a trap, to, to set a snare. And literally to set a trap, to clear a space, to retreat into the blinds and wait expectantly for something to happen. All right? That kind of prayer is a call to a contemplative way of life that continually clears the space, opens up the possibility for something to happen by clearing out all the stuff that keep us afraid, keep us anxious, keep us guarded, keep us in a defensive crouch. When we can let go of that, when we can finally be comfortable with our vulnerability, we can finally be courageous enough to be imperfect, as Brene Brown likes to say. Then 
connection can happen. Then intimacy can happen. And that's what we're talking about here. This call to a contemplative prayer or a contemplative way of life has been called the apophatic way, which means the negative way, the way of denial. And that sounds really dark and, and not so much fun. But really, what is it that we're talking about when we talk about a negative way? We're talking again about clearing out the content in our heads. Clearing out all that stuff. It's not about adding more stuff in, getting more knowledge that's somehow going to enlighten us to the point that we can, what, overcome these fears? It's about subtraction. It's about letting go of the things that are covering over the truth that is here and now in every moment. This truth that can show us how much we're already loved, how much we're already in, how much we're already accepted, which is completely, absolutely, unconditionally. That's the good news that Jesus keeps talking about. Typically, though, when we talk about denying ourselves, and you remember what Jesus said at, what was it, Matthew 16, he said, if you would follow me, then deny yourself, pick up your cross, and let's go. That's a loose translation. Let's go. But deny yourself. That sounds negative. The way it's usually interpreted through uh, Christian scholarship is to stop being selfish. You know, stop just doing what you want to do and do what God wants to do. But really, that's just a very superficial way of looking at this. Because of all of that stuff in your head is what's making you anxious, afraid, guarded, holding everything at arm's length then to deny that is to allow yourself into connection, into communion, as we were talking about. It's not about being selfish in the sense of doing something malicious or something inconsiderate against someone. It's about letting go of all the stuff that is keeping you from being connected to everyone around you. And so it changes the content of what it is that we're talking about. It's letting go of everything that makes us not free. When Jesus, said, Jesus says that when you do follow this way, when you do become open and vulnerable, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free of all of this stuff. So that's what we're trying to talk about here. We're trying to get this point across. Jesus is trying to get this point across. But it's so difficult. Last week I talked about examples from my childhood of memories that I had forgotten that bubbled up after a certain period of time of practicing centering prayer, contemplative prayer. And they kind of bubble up on their own accord. And they carried with them a connection of the hurts and the traumas of my childhood. As minor as they may seem to me now, they were all encompassing back then when I was only three feet tall. Creating the behavior patterns and the the constant choices that I make and the attitudes that I had, the depression that I had. And so the process of centering prayer starts a process of self-discovery, starts a process of starting to remember who we really are, who we were when we were young enough. And then what happened to us and what we forgot and how we covered things over and allowing us to start breaking that down. It allows the unremembered self to come back up to the surface, to resurface. And so it becomes a very important part of our lives. Some people go to psychologists for this. Get lay down on the psychologist's couch, metaphorically, nobody does that anymore, do they? And get regressed back to find out what's back there in the past. It happens naturally when you engage this spiritual journey, when you engage this way 
I'm continually emptying the content out to see what starts to come up. There are certain characteristics to Centering Prayer, and I wanted to read a few of them to you because hopefully they'll start to connect with you in ways that are getting, all of this is geared just to give you the desire to want to engage, to want to do this on a, as a daily practice. Because without that, nothing changes. We can't just think our way through this. We really have to act our way through this. But some characteristics of centering prayer, this, this prayer of emptying out our content. By your willingness to stay at the apophatic, that's denying yourself, just not listening to that voice in your head for once, at all costs, you are developing a spirit of spiritual non-possessiveness. I like that, spiritual non-possessiveness. The reference here is to Matthew 5.3, where Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, poor in spirit is an Aramaic idiom that means an attitude of poverty even if you're rich. That's great. That's humility. That is non-aggression. That is seeing everyone as equal. But this writer is taking it to another level where he's saying it's non-possessiveness. Poverty of spirit is not clinging on, not taking ownership of all that stuff in our head. That is creating the fear. All that stuff in our head that is telling us we have to defend. We have to keep the shields up. One great temptation is a sort of spiritual materialism where we want only good feelings. Can anyone relate to that? But this is a dying to that self as well, over and over again. Allowing the regular oscillations of life to happen, which are going to include good feelings and bad feelings and an oscillation between the two. During the course of centering prayer, we are slipping in and out of interior silence. By interior silence, we are referring to a state in which we do not become attached to the thoughts as they go by. Again, this spiritual non-possessiveness. You see them, you just let them go by. You don't grab on, you don't start obsessing again, just let them go by. The prayer is not a conversation in words. Words are, as we said last week, a reinforcement of ourself of that self-image that we have that can be so damaging and so negative. But this is an exchange of hearts, just a connection point, a deep connection point. Centering prayer is training in letting go. We listen to God. We listen to his silence. Our only activity is the attention we offer to God as we let go of all thoughts. We rest in God's arms. It's an exercise in being rather than doing. The purpose of centering prayer is not to experience peace, but to evacuate the unconscious obstacles to the permanent abiding state of union with God. We have a Wednesday night book study, and we're going through uh, Ruthless Trust by Brendan Manning. And there was a quote in there where um, Manning says, if we go for an experience just for the sake of the experience, then we're really serving self and not God. Okay, that one line was about a 20-minute conversation, as I recall. Because what the heck, you're trying to figure this out. But what he's talking about is the same thing here. If we're just going for an experience, an experience of peace, an experience in good feelings, then as Jesus would say, you have your reward in full. You got that. But you're really not going to get any further. Because it's letting go of even that desire for a positive experience, just showing up and letting whatever happens, happens is really what Jesus is talking about here. It's what this contemplative way is all about. Letting the feelings come that come. If we just show up and completely become vulnerable, 
open up, let ourselves be seen by whomever we're with, even if it's just God's Spirit. The restructuring of consciousness is the fruit of this regular practice as you slowly become more free from the swings of the false self system. So that emotional roller coaster that we're on, eventually, as Alanon likes to say, you begin to detach with love. You begin to move away from that. You see the swings, you recognize them in yourself, but they're not taking you full force into that place so that you can just be completely open and vulnerable, completely present to everything that's going on around you. Contemplative prayer is the school in which we must pass to come to the contemplative state, the means God normally uses to bring people into an abiding state of union. So contemplation is a state of being free enough to be able to have that union. You know this with other people. If your guard is up, if your arm is out, you cannot connect with them. It's only by risking being completely open, letting them see even the things that you like to hide, that you really connect with another person. There was a quote that uh, I came across. It was, uh, intimacy is the ability to be rather weird with someone and finding out it's okay with them. I thought that was pretty good. You know, let them see you. Let them see your your foibles. Let them see the things that you usually like to keep hidden. And finding out that it's okay with them creates this level of comfortability, this level of safety that we all crave. And finally, to be on this journey is the greatest contribution we can make to the human family. As in this prayer, we are developing the capacity to wait upon God with loving attentiveness. You know, cloistered monks, those who actually live, and nuns as well, in a cloistered community... They believe that by following the contemplative way, they're actually raising the collective consciousness of all humanity. Even if they don't connect with them physically, they're raising the collective consciousness. You know? It's a beautiful thought. I don't know if it's true or not, but what I do know is that we can raise the collective consciousness of our own family, our immediate family. One person who starts to move into this kind of place, who has that kind of vulnerability and openness, attentiveness, acceptance in themselves can change the entire group in which they are. That's raising a collective consciousness within our own sphere of influence. And maybe there is that greater sphere as well. But we can start with where we are. We can start with this to see if we can get where we want to get. And so contemplative prayer becomes a tool, a tool for this hero's journey that we're on. And are some of you familiar? Not, who's not familiar with the hero's journey? Have you heard of the hero's journey before? Everybody knows about the hero's journey. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's okay. And it's good that you do. The hero's journey is, is a description of a rite of passage. It is the story that we've been telling ourselves as human beings since we were drawing on cave walls. It as Joseph Campbell talks about the hero with a thousand faces, it's a story that has the same shape to it, the same milestones to it, but infinite variety, infinite detail. And the reason that we keep telling our stories this way to ourselves over time, from Homer and Odysseus to Parsifal and the search for the Holy Grail to Luke Skywalker to Neo in the Matrix, it's the same story over and over again because it is a description of the emotional, psychological, and spiritual journey that every single one of us takes. If we choose to answer the call, 
that life has upon us. And this is what's really important. Take a look at your bulletins now. And I have a chart there. And I typically don't like to use charts when it comes to spiritual things because charts can never describe what's going on. But I thought this might give us a visual way of seeing what is going on in this hero's journey, the journey of our own lives, the journey of Jesus' life as recorded in the New Testament. But the journey starts, just as it does for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, with connection, complete, utter connection. Adam and Eve are described as being in the garden and being naked but not knowing that they were naked and just walking with the Lord in the cool of the evening. Complete connection, an unknowing kind of connection. It was so pure, it was so deep, they weren't even aware of it, just like a child is not aware of it. Because really the story of Eden is the story of this journey as well. At some point, though, every child has to hit the age of reason. They start closing the door to the bathroom when they go in there. They start pronouncing words right. They understand right from wrong. They understand that they are separate from the adults around them and the people around them. At a certain age, they just think everything is one and they are the center of the universe. And it's a beautiful thing for them in that bubble. But they hit the age of reason. This corresponds to the eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now we hit that age. Now suddenly we know we're naked. The Lord asks Adam and Eve when they come show up wearing their fig leaves, who told you you were naked? You know, It's that idea of growing up, getting to that point. The hero's journey begins with a wounding. There's always a wounding. Some type of wounding. If you think about the various stories that are transformation stories that fall along the hero's journey, there's always a wounding. Dorothy Gale is wounded by the loss of her parents, by not having the life that she wants, longing for something over the rainbow Parsifal is wounded because the land has been made toxic by the loss of the connection with the king. Odysseus is wounded because he hasn't seen his wife in his home for 10 years and he just desires and longs to get back. Whatever it is, and think about it in your life, in your childhood, what were the woundings there that made you realize that the life that you lead was not as safe as you thought it was? That people could betray you and hurt you or abandon you or neglect you? That you weren't the center of the universe? That your needs were not always going to be met? The child is called out of the child's life into the adult life by these woundings. But we don't always answer the call. Or we don't answer it completely especially as a child, the best we can do is simply survive. And so we put in place programs for survival. We put in place emotional programs for happiness. A perfect example is a child of an alcoholic. A child of an alcoholic lives in such a dysfunctional house that there are no responsible adults. The child who is completely dependent upon the adults in their lives, their parents and others, to find out that there is no... (laughs) There is no happening there. There is no order there. The child then has to supply the order. The child has to become the adult in that scenario. And they learn through order to find a sense of connection, a sense of of enough peace, you know, that they can get by. And so taking control becomes their emotional program for happiness. When they order everything, when they have it all under control, then they feel like, okay, It's safe now. Everything is all right. Problem is, when you leave that situation and you're no longer in that home, the program doesn't go away. It stays in place. And so an adult child of an alcoholic 
or adult children of alcoholics all have very similar traits and characteristics that need for control because that program is still there and it has become embedded so deeply that it is who they think they are. They identify with control as who they are. It becomes their false self. It becomes them. And now they don't know any different because now reality looks like that to them. There is no other reality. They become this and they move into a place of disconnection. So if you're following me along the circle here, we start with connection, that blissful time in the garden of our, of our childhood. We hit the age of reason. We get wounded. We get traumatized. And everybody does. Everybody does. Everybody should. Without the wounding, the journey doesn't start. Sometimes as parents, we think we're supposed to keep our little perfect babies completely perfect and innocent and, and without blemish and without any kind of hurt. And that's not only impossible, because we're dysfunctional ourselves. We're operating through our own false selves, so we can't do that perfectly. But we shouldn't. Brene Brown, again, says it, says it so well. She said, these little babies come out all perfect in pink, but they're wired for struggle. They're hardwired for adversity. And without it, they'll never become the full human beings that we were designed to be and that we're here to become. So as parents, we're not supposed to save our kids from every consequence, every hurt. We're here to put a limit on the trauma so that knots don't get tied in their cord that they can't possibly untie in a single lifetime. But that's it. We move through this cycle and we end up living that reality. You know, there's that line that I like to say, the reality you believe is a reality you endure. So once we have this false self embedded, that is the reality Everything looks as it does through that filter. And so we live now in this state of disconnection. We are now living east of Eden. We have been expelled from the garden. The way is blocked. We can't go back that way. We can only go forward. We can't go back. But sometimes we're too afraid to go forward. Sometimes the trauma is so deep that we end up just camped outside the gates of Eden. Can't go back. Too afraid to go forward. And our life just stays in this rut, stays in this gray place where we can't move forward. But usually at some point, there is a bottoming out. You can call it hitting bottom, you can call it bottoming out. It could be that some kind of crisis takes place, some kind of traumatic event takes place, or maybe it's just a midlife crisis that takes place, which is always a crisis of meaning and purpose. But we suddenly realize that we don't know why we're here anymore. We don't know why we're breathing anymore. We need to find something that makes sense. Now at that point, that crisis point in a person's life, they still have a choice. You can go back. You can redouble your efforts to go back into the womb, to go back into the chrysalis. But if you chose, choose to go forward, things start to happen. People show up that become your guides. And when you're really ready to listen, these people can actually teach you. And if your life takes on a spiritual quest or a spiritual journey, and you have the ability to at least understand what it means to clear out that space, then your contemplative journey begins. And the tools that we need to be able to dismantle the false self become available to us. Because that's what contemplation is about. It's about dismantling the false self, dismantling all those emotional programs. So the programs were put in 
at a certain point in our youth, and now we are going through the process of deprogramming, letting go of all of this stuff through this contemplative way. And there isn't a real clear connection as to why just in removing the content of our minds for just a short period of time, 20, 30 minutes a day, has this effect. But it spills over into the rest of our day so that we spend the whole day mindfully aware, coming back to presence, not just sleepwalking through our life. It reconnects us through these memories that can bubble up to who we were before the trauma kicked in. We remember that joyful child. We can start to remember that and the true self starts to reinsert. And we start to realize we can be that person and people will still love us and we'll still be accepted. And ironically, we will be more lovable, more acceptable than we ever were before. Because now the guard isn't up. Everything changes and we move back. Maybe a way you can look at it is our whole life is trying to get back to the garden. But not with the unknowing of a child, because a child can't help but be unknowing. They haven't developed enough. But now, volitionally, with our choice, we choose to come back to the garden, to just open up and be absolutely connected. This is what Jesus is trying to show us. This is what kingdom is all about, to let go of those emotional programs, the attitudes, expectations. We have expected life to be a certain way, and it becomes a certain way. Letting go of all of that doubt is exactly what Jesus is talking about. And it's critical to our growth. Absolutely critical. It's like a snake shedding its skin. You know, The skin is not big enough to contain the snake. It has to shed the skin in order for the snake to grow. It's like the caterpillar breaking out of the chrysalis. have to break out of that thing. Otherwise, it doesn't work. Jesus talks about this when he says that you would never put new wine into old wineskins. Because new wine is not finished expanding. The fermenting process is going to expand the wine. And once those skins are stretched, they're not going to stretch again. So you don't put new wine that's going to expand into the old wineskin or burst and is lost, but you put the new wine into new wineskins and let them all expand together. This is exactly what he's talking about here. We have to be willing to shed our skin. We have to be willing to let go of the womb that has made us feel secure to date in order to be able to grow into the next phase of our lives, grow into this new place. Because you can't take the old ideas into the new world. Or maybe better, it's the old ideas that keep us from seeing this new world. It's here, it's now, it's all around us. We're breathing it in and breathing it out, but we won't see it and we can't avail ourselves to it and it won't make any difference in our experience of our relationships, of our connection points, until we let go, until all of this can just become a new normal, a new way of seeing things. How difficult is this process, do you think? Well, it's difficult. But the reason it's difficult is that we resist the change. We resist the growth. Because change isn't really painful. Resistance to change is excruciating. If we can stop the resistance, if we can realize this is a natural pattern, we can move into this. There's an example in Scripture. And this is a, a passage that doesn't get a lot of press because it's been difficult for the church to, to deal with because it re regards one of our most revered figures in the New Testament, John the Baptist, at a weak moment. And we don't quite know how to spin that. you know. But take a look at Matthew 11. 
Right at verse 1. When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his twelve disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John, this is John the Baptist, his cousin, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Now if you know anything about John, that, that should be a shocking statement. Are you the expected one, or should we look for someone else? Are you kidding me? This is the guy who leapt in his mother's womb when Mary came to visit his mother Elizabeth because he recognized who was in Mary's womb. This is the guy, when Jesus showed up at the river to be baptized, he said, you should be baptizing me. This is the guy who said, I must decrease as he increases. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And now he says, are you the expected one? Should we look for someone else? What in the world's going on here? What happened to John? Say it ain't so, John. The church has come up with several ideas and lots of scholars have tried to come up with ways to understand this. You know, one thought was, if you set the stage a little bit, after they parted ways, John continued to, with his ministry and the king was enamored of him and respected him. But John would, would not abide the king's uh, marital um, infidelity with, uh, with another woman. And he called him on it, and so he ends up in prison. So he's languishing away in prison for standing up and speaking truth to power. Jesus, meanwhile, his ministry is going through the land, and John is getting these reports back. But John is in prison. He's not with Jesus. He feels abandoned. He must feel abandoned. He probably thought he was supposed to be a part of all of this. Jesus said that he was the one who was preparing his way. So maybe it was a sense of personal abandonment that caused him to have this moment of weakness. That seems perfectly natural to me. Another scholar says, you know, he really knew that it was Jesus, but he was doing this for his followers' sake. He sent them with this question so that Jesus could respond to them directly and they would get the message maybe more strongly than he could ever tell them, especially from his prison cell. Or maybe it was a case, another one says, of mistaken identification. You know, he's been in prison for a while. Is this the same guy? Is this the same guy that I baptized? Is this really my cousin or is this someone else who's doing all these things? We come up with all these various ways to try to come at this, to understand how this pillar of faith, this prophet, could ask such a question. But there's a principle in science called Occam's Razor. Are you familiar with that one? Basically, it says... The simplest explanation tends to be the right one. We can come at all these different ways of trying to explain physical phenomenon or emotional phenomenon, but the simplest explanation tends to be right. And the simplest explanation here is that John was blinded by his own expectations. Most scholars believe that John was an Essene. An Essene is one of the four principal sects of of Judaism that were around in the first century of Jesus' day. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, and the Essenes. The Essenes were the group who looked at Judea, kind of like a lot of Christians look at the United States right now, and say, man, this place is lost. It's corrupt. It's gone. We're out of here. And they were the separatists. They went out into the deserts. They created their own communities that were set up to be absolutely pure, absolutely holding to their ideals and their doctrines. 
And they were just waiting it out because they knew these people were going to blow themselves up. And when they did, then they would come back and they would reoccupy the land and bring it back into a state of purity. Most scholars believe John was one of these Essenes. He was one of these hardcore guys living out in the desert. And it, it comports with everything that we know from the New Testament, even though the Essenes are not mentioned in the text itself. But they had a phrase the expected one. They believed that a Messiah was coming. They believed that this person was coming who was going to blow up all the rest of the Romans and all the sects of Judaism that were corrupt and impure and was going to bring them in. And so they had an idea. They had an image of this which created their own worldview, their views of themselves as adherents to this this sect, this faith of theirs. And if John was one of those Essenes, if he saw Jesus in this way at the beginning, but now is hearing all of these reports that Jesus is sitting with tax collectors, with prostitutes, he's working with people who are unclean, impure, standing outside the law, and every time the mantle of some sort of political or military power is offered him, he kicks it away, that's got to be messing with John's head as he's sitting in prison. Are you really the expected one? Or should we look for someone else? Natural, if you think. He was looking through his expectations and not seeing what he expected to see. And so Jesus answers. And he says to them, the followers of John that he sent, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. And that's kind of an odd last line for us. But I love the way that Eugene Peterson translates it in the message. He says, is this what you have come to expect? Then you're blessed. It's coming back to expectations. Here is Jesus doing all this work. Is that what you expected? If so, you're blessed. If it's stumbling you, if it's making you lose your faith, if you're taking offense at these things because they don't comport with what you expected to see, all right, then you're not going to be able to go where I'm going. This is what Jesus is trying to... And then the words that he uses here are straight out of Isaiah 61. He's trying to get John to remember something here. That God's original intent for the Mashiach, for the Messiah, was not military. It wasn't political. It was spiritual. And it was personal. The Messiah was understood by the prophets to be the agent of shalom, peace, which wasn't just the absence of conflict, but the greatest amount of health and healing and wholeness. It was perfect unity, perfect connection. Anything less than shalom was hataha, which we translate as sin, as missing the mark of this perfect connection. But here's the thing. You can't work for shalom through hataha, The means that you use must match the ends that you seek because the means you use always match the ends that you produce. Military, by definition, is not shalom. Politics, by definition, is always a compromise of shalom, even if it works for peace and raising everyone's boats. You can't work for perfect connection through imperfect means. Jesus has to work through shalom. Allowing the blind to be able to see, the deaf to hear, the lame to walk, is bringing everyone into that shalom. 
he's trying to remind John by taking him on his own journey, by putting a scripture in front of him that he would surely not miss because as in a scene, he would have been schooled in all of this. To bring back to remembrance, to let John work it out for himself, not just to identify whether Jesus is the expected one, but to change John's expectations, to dismantle everything that he thought he knew about his life and the life of his nation, about the Mashiach, about his God, and come into this place of growth, come into this new understanding. And then at the very end, he gives this last bit. As these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? What did you expect? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. And one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What is he saying here? He's saying that John is the greatest of the adherents of the old thinking of the old paradigm, of the false self, of the old expectations. But it's not just that John is a lesser form of what is needed. John and that thinking is utterly incapable of taking us where we want to go if where we want to go is kingdom. So as great as John is, and he is the pinnacle of the Old Testament prophets, the least in the kingdom, the tax collector, the prostitute, who finally understands how well he and she are loved, who moves into this new space is greater than that because they have shed their skin. They have let go of the things that need to be let go so they can move into this new understanding. It's, it's, it's so foundational. It's so radical that we miss it. We miss the things that are going on. Contemplative prayer is the tool. It's the engine that we can use here and now in our society, in our time, that can break down the false self, the worldview that we have built around ourselves in the course of our own lives. We can do this. It'll let us see what's really new. We were talking about mindfulness with the, the group that we work with here. And one of the women said that even though she hates bugs, she got into the shower and found that there was a grasshopper <laughs> that was sitting on the caddy inside the shower. And rather than being repulsed, she was just so taken aback looking at this grasshopper and the way that it was dealing with the water coming down, that it was wiping its antenna and it was drinking and it was just having this really good time in the shower. She just got completely mesmerized watching this grasshopper. She even forgot to be disgusted by it. And then when it fell off and was starting to circle the drain, she actually reached down and rescued it and it's sitting on her hand and she, she said, normally that would just freak her out, but she was just having fun with the grasshopper, you know? And then the grasshopper took off and flew away. And then she was looking for it and trying to save it. She had this moment with the grasshopper because she was able to just let go. The moment itself came in in such a way that she was able to see it in a completely new light and have this incredibly childlike moment with a grasshopper. 
And then another guy popped in and he said, it's like when I'm on the golf course, you know? He says, if, if I'm thinking about my swing, if I'm thinking about the scorecard, if I'm thinking about what I got to do, he said, I just get all mixed up. But if I just look around at the trees and I just see how beautiful the fairway is and I just feel the swing, he said, things happen, you know? And it has nothing to do with the scorecard. It has nothing to do with that. Having dinner with a couple a few nights ago, and uh, the gentleman who is the host was telling us that he used to love to go golfing with a group of friends, but one point where the competition got so great that one of the guys, you know, wrapped his club around a tree because he just missed a, a drive or something, he said that was the last time that he golfed with them because he realized it was antithetical to the experience he was trying to have. Here he was with all his church friends and a couple of pastors. And it got to that point that you're wrapping a club around a tree? See, if we go through golf only thinking about the scorecard, we're going to miss the reason that we're playing golf. Because unless, I suppose, you're a pro, playing golf has very little to do with the scorecard and everything to do with the experience of being here now in one of the most beautiful places that mankind creates golf courses. They're beautiful. Can you just be there? Can you enjoy the beauty? Can you enjoy the camaraderie? Can you feel the purity of your own swing? Can you laugh when it goes into the trees or you shank it? Or are you going to wrap your club around a tree? If you're in treatment and your whole goal is what? To be sober? To comply, fulfill some court mandate? To get your wife back, your kids back, your husband back? If that is the only goal that you have, you're going to miss the reason that you're in treatment. Because the reason that you're in treatment is to experience the connection, the deep connection, to start letting go because of your increased awareness of all the things that brought you into that room in the first place. You won't see it. You won't get there if you're focused only on the outcome. And for us here in this room, if our reason for being here is to gain heaven and avoid hell, to have our problems solved by God, to get the spouse we need, the money we need, the house we want, the, the, the feeling of peace and serenity. If that is the focus, then we will not get there because the means we use must match the ends that we seek. We need to practice letting go of all of that stuff, not reinforce it with a continual petitionary prayer for God to get me out of this mess. It is so different in the way that we look at things. And it all has to do with seeing things as they really are. Letting go of the expectations. Not being blinded anymore. I wanted to just finish up with this one last little reading. And this comes from Chuang Tzu, who was a Chinese teacher. Predates Jesus by two or three hundred years. And he just writes of a dream that he had. But just listen to the words he uses. Listen to the awakening that he's trying to express. Maybe if you can get this, you can have your own grasshopper moment. Once upon a time, I, Chuang Su, dreamt I was a butterfly, fluttering hither and thither, a veritable butterfly, enjoying itself to the fullest of its bent and not knowing it was Chuang Su. Suddenly I awoke and I came to myself, the veritable Chuang Su. Now, I do not know whether it was then I dreamt I was a butterfly or whether I am now a butterfly (laughs) dreaming I am a man. How do I know that enjoying life is not a delusion? How do I know that in hating death we are not like people who got lost early in childhood 
and do not know the way home. Lady Li was the child of a border guard in Ai. When first captured by the state of Jin, she wept so much her clothes were soaked. But after she entered the palace, shared the king's bed, and dined on the finest meats, she regretted her tears. How do I know that the dead do not regret their previous longing for life? One who dreams of drinking wine may in the morning weep. One who dreams of weeping may in the morning go out and hunt. During our dreams, we do not know we are dreaming. We may even dream of interpreting a dream. Only on waking do we know it was a dream. Only after the great awakening will we realize that this is the great dream. And yet fools think they are awake, presuming to know that they are rulers or herdsmen. How dense. You and Confucius are both dreaming, and I who say you are a dream am also a dream. Such is my tale. It will probably be called preposterous, but after 10,000 generations, there may be a great sage who will be able to explain it, a trivial interval equivalent to the passage from morning to night. We are born from a quiet sleep, and we die to a calm awakening. We think we understand this life. We are so familiar with it, we don't give it a second thought. We sleepwalk through our moments. We are not aware. We are not awake. We are not asking the right questions. We are not constantly and continually calling ourselves back to an awareness that can give us the insight, that can get us over the fear of what? Insects? Golf? Social anxiety? If we can just do what Jesus says, stop worrying, let the day be sufficient for the day, be present, be here, be now, seek first kingdom and God's righteousness, which is this quality of life, this oneness, this unity that is available to us right here, and let everything else be a byproduct, a result of that one thing that we do, Jesus is telling us, wake up, wake up, stop your sleeping. As he asked to the man at the side of the, of the pool, do you wish to be well? Do you want to be well? He's giving sight to the blind, and the blind are those who are blinded by their own expectation. We can change if we are willing to enter into this way of living, to expend the effort it takes to learn how to be present. The scales will fall from our eyes too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you first of all. We we just continually thank you. You're so gracious. The things that you give us, the things that you continue to pour on us, The beauty of these flowers and plants that John has arranged in the courtyard came from you first. You precede everything. Help us to see that. Help us to see that you are everywhere, that you precede us everywhere. Every good thing that that we have comes from you, that we are loved with a love that we cannot lose, that this good news can fuel our ability to let go of all the stuff that covers us over and keeps us afraid and covered in fig leaves. We want to open up, Lord. We want to be completely open to you. Help our lack of trust. Help our unbelief. Help us to do what we need to do to experience who you really are. And thank you for loving us the way that you do, Father. We can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.